Hello, everyone. You are listening to Diverse Roots, a podcast all about the unique career journeys in science and medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Cassie Briggs, and in each episode, I'm joined by a successful professional who shares their career journey, lessons learned, and advice for aspiring scientists like yourself. So whether you're on your commute, working out, or doing some chores, prepare to be inspired. Dr. Delaney Dan is a career and professional development manager at Scripps, a nonprofit biomedical research institute in San Diego, California. With a background in molecular biology, including a BS in biology, a couple years in the biotech industry, and a PhD in biology, Delaney had her sights on becoming a university biology professor. But during the interview process, realized that a faculty role was not the right fit for her. So she used an NIH fellowship to explore alternative career options and build her skills and network, landing her in her current role where she supports early career scientists through career development workshops, programming, and advising. This episode is so jam-packed with great content, it's really hard for me to narrow in and only highlight a few things in this introduction, but here it goes. In this episode, we discuss what things to consider when contemplating a gap year before grad school, how to successfully cold apply for jobs, that is, land a job without a network connection, and how online learning or teaching can prepare you for a remote or hybrid career. And we also reveal the non-science class every scientist should take. So without further ado, let's dive into my conversation with Dr. Delaney Dan. Delaney, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Cassie. Great to see you and happy to be here. Before we jump in, can you tell our listeners just a little bit more about yourself? Um, So what you do for a living and anything from your personal life you care to share? Yes, absolutely. So my name is Dr. Delaney Dan. I currently work in higher education space, more on the administrative side where I am the career and professional development manager at a nonprofit biomedical research institute called Scripps Research. We're located in San Diego, California, and that's where I'm talking to you from today. Um, I would say in terms of my identity and the professional setting, I identify mostly as a scientist because that's really the core of my background and training. I have a PhD in biology but also as an educator. And these two themes have really been a through line through much of my background and training and also in my current role today. And I'm so excited to have you on because a lot of our guests are in, I guess, the more immediate, like at the lab bench in the field type science. And I am so excited to introduce how you can still be engaged with science um, in this type of way, and especially those that love mentoring, teaching, that type of thing, but can't see themselves in academia. So I'm stoked to share your story on the podcast today. Before I ask more about your journey, let's start at the very, very beginning. What is the very first thing you remember wanting to be when you grow up? Well, you know, early on, I spent a lot of time outdoors and we had cats and dogs and horses and really spent a lot of time, you know, enjoying that outdoor space with our animals. And for me as well, I had a lot of involvement early on with the Jane Goodall Institute. 
um, doing some outreach related to um, serving the animal community, the environment, and the human community. And so kind of that combination of love of the outdoors, love of animals, and you know, learning about issues around the world um, related to animals and their well-being, I was interested in being a vet very early on, specifically a large animal vet because we did have uh, horses growing up. And I'd say that was something I was pretty passionate about all the way through high school, really. And what was helpful, and I think this is sort of a theme throughout my career, is trying to get as much experiential learning along the way as I was sort of making decisions about about my career. And so I started to do some shadowing of uh, our horse's vet. And that's when I really realized that the day-to-day of that position was was quite challenging in in terms of you know a lot of driving around to different ranches and meeting with clients frequently as well you're often dealing with horses that aren't feeling real well <laughs> and and that was quite quite difficult to see and i think through that experiential learning process i recognized that i really wanted that component of my life that connection with the animals to be sort of my escape from my work, if I ever wanted that, and maybe not so much wrapped into my my work. And so I've always, you know, continue to enjoy that space, but that helped me identify that maybe that wasn't exactly the path to go down. And so smart that you took the initiative to actually go shadow a vet and see what their day-to-day was like. Um, and it reminds me of a question that I always ask my coaching clients when we start brainstorming their interests to distinguish between the interests you want to incorporate in your career and those you actually want to protect and keep out of your career. Because there's some interests that if they became work, they would lose some of that joy that they held for you in the first place. And it sounds like your experience with horses is a perfect example of that. Absolutely. And so obviously you didn't become a vet. And so take us through, I guess, the major milestones of your career journey and anything within those that you want to share with our listeners. Yeah, I think, you know, everyone can look in retrospect and sort of create what sounds like a linear trajectory in their career by connecting bits and pieces. But I'll say along the way, it felt um you know, like a lot of ups and downs and pivots and turns. So I went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo for my undergraduate degree. It's in the central coast of California. And there I studied biology and got a minor in biotechnology. And as well, I was also able to engage again in more of this experiential learning components of getting my feet wet with teaching. And so I took some different courses in science pedagogy as well. I was able to do kind of informal education outreach in my community through some different programs at Cal Poly. So working with first graders, second graders, and all the way through high schoolers, really getting a taste of what it's like to work with different age levels and kind of get some experience in that teaching space and enjoyed it tremendously. From there, I think... I learned that the teaching was something that was really important to me and I wanted to continue to engage in throughout my career, but I was also really interested in research. And so my sophomore year at Cal Poly, I joined a research lab. We were studying plant genetics 
And I had a really phenomenal mentor there who was interested in supporting me in that research space, but also in developing my teaching expertise and kind of helped me think about the idea of going to graduate school, which I think by my junior year, I got more and more focused in on. At the same time, I wanted to continue to build my research skills and my scientific skills and also wanted to just test out what it was like working in a biotech space before I jumped into a PhD with sort of this end goal of being a faculty member. And so I worked in biotech for a few years after I finished my undergraduate degree and gained some additional skills, uh, worked with some different um, companies there. And I think from that experience, I also learned that the positions that I was most interested in, you know, the people around me that I thought, oh, they have such an interesting position or they're making all of these um, critical decisions about, you know, collaboration with other groups, things like that. A lot of them had a PhD. And so in many ways, my experience working in biotech and kind of seeing different career trajectories also helped solidify my decision to go to graduate school. And so I applied to a number of graduate schools and ended up going to UC San Diego. Um, so I grew up in San Diego. I was uh, hoping to leave San Diego at least for a little while for graduate school, but it ended up just being a really great option for me. I'm so happy that I decided to get my degree there. Um, my research really focused on understanding these teeny tiny non-coding RNA molecules and trying to figure out what they're doing in related to uh, regulating stress responses. And our lab used the model organism C. elegans. Again, I was still really interested in developing my teaching skill set through graduate school. And so that was something I communicated with my advisor early on, that my career goal was really to be you know, a professor focused on teaching and research. So maybe at like a primarily undergraduate research institute. And she was very supportive of me getting some skills in the teaching and mentoring aspects um, throughout my training, which I really am very appreciative of. So I mentored a number of undergraduate students through the lab to really help focus in on developing those skills. Um, I also engaged in informal and formal teaching experiences throughout, including teaching my own class um, at the end of my graduate term there. And then I was getting to the end of my PhD and started to apply for some different positions. Most of them were you know, lecturing positions or assistant all the way through assistant professor or teaching professor type roles. And it really wasn't until I was sitting in some of those interviews that I just had this gut feeling that this wasn't actually going to be the right career choice for me. And that was a very challenging component of, I'd say, that career journey. But when I asked about opportunities to you know, build more programming for students to help support their academic needs, uh, to provide more mentorship and guidance, I'd say that's kind of categorized in the branch of what's called service in the academic setting. So doing things that support the university or the community in that space. I was sort of met with, a, you know, it's really great that you're interested in that, but that's not going to be the primary function of this position. And for me, it really made me stop and reevaluate what my priorities were, what was so interesting to me about that 
idea of being a you know professor and kind of thinking about what other options do I have to really utilize my interest in science, utilize my interest in teaching and my growing interest in mentoring younger students along the way. And at that time, I also had applied for a few different fellowship opportunities, one of which I ended up accepting and it ended up being a really wonderful opportunity to continue to learn about different careers that can leverage my skill set. And so I took a position in Washington, D.C. with the American Society of Human Genetics, and it was co-sponsored by the National Institutes of Health. And that fellowship was called the Genetics Education and Engagement Fellowship. And all of a sudden, I was introduced to a world of other science PhDs who had these similar interests in both the science and the research, but also engaging with the community engaging with students, engaging with other educators to help disseminate that information and improve scientific literacy among diverse populations. Through that experience, I also learned that the National Institutes of Health has a really large training office. So they do education and training work for all of their scientists at different career levels. And I started to connect with folks in that space and realized that a lot of them had their PhDs in science as well but we're also helping to do a lot of the education and training for more junior scientists. And I thought that that was a really interesting space and so continued to explore it, which sort of led me to my current role at Scripps Research, um, where I get to support uh, the graduate students and postdocs here through mentorship, career advising, I do a bit of teaching um, and develop some different programming to help support their career and professional developments. Wow, what an incredible journey. And I can't tell you how much of what you shared I really relate to, especially the, hmm, I thought I was going to be a faculty member. And then that whole mindset shift, that identity shift that needs to happen. Um, So we'll dive into that more moving forward. But I want to pause and ask you, because a lot of our audience is in a position where they can choose whether or not to continue straight into a grad program or go into the workforce first or just forever. So what led you to the decision to pursue a biotech position before grad school? A few things. I'd say first, it's really stressful to try to apply for graduate school while you're finishing your undergraduate degree. And so the first thing is trying to give myself a little bit of grace and time to make sure that I was going to be able to have the bandwidth to really uh, you know, study for the GRE. I still had to take the GRE when I was applying for graduate school that time, um, as well to continue to build my scientific skills focus on getting really good grades through my last year of college. So for me, it was just sort of compartmentalizing those things a little bit. And and the second component was five plus years of school is a really long time. And I wanted to feel a sense of certainty by making sure that I was exploring different options presented to me um, with the degree that I had. And so kind of diving into that space a little bit for my own sake of learning of what sort of careers are out there, I think was really valuable for not only building up a more robust scientific skill set, but also kind of 
um, driving my curiosity to want to continue to build my research skills in a PhD program. And then how did you decide when it was time to leave that position and go back to grad school? That was a hard decision. Um, but again, I had this curiosity that was sort of unmet and I really wanted to be back in that space of doing academic research. And for me, that was something that really drove me to apply for graduate school. As well, I think the biotech industry can be turbulent too. So within a year, I, um, I, there were two companies I was working at and you know, one dissolved uh, very quickly and the other was you know, acquired and it's a bit tumultuous. And so some of it has to do with kind of the state of the places I was working as well, kind of lined up timing wise with me going ahead and applying to move on to graduate school. Gotcha. And then what advice do you have for someone like you applying for these faculty positions, which are kind of notorious as being difficult to land? Um, what led you to think about fellowship opportunities in conjunction with that process? I think, like you said, they're, they're competitive positions. And so I really was thinking of casting a broader net. Um, it's a little bit challenging when you get to the end of your PhD and all of a sudden you're going to be unemployed and it's important to find sort of your next step. And so when I wasn't really hearing back from too many of those opportunities, um, trying to look a little bit more um, outside of sort of that narrow focus and expand my opportunities by applying for some different fellowships. But it really was just sitting online, kind of writing my thesis and also Googling, you know, education and science fellowships or science and technology fellowships, just kind of using some keywords and then sort of stumbling upon these opportunities and going ahead and um, applying for them. So I would just suggest, you know, cast a wide net, apply for things that maybe you didn't normally envision yourself doing, but kind of align at least with some of your goals or your interest, because you never know what might pan out. Absolutely. All right. So now let's talk about your current role. Um, so how did you discover this position and what was the process like in terms of landing the opportunity? So my current position is at Scripps Research Institute in San Diego, California. And unlike the other positions I've had, this one I actually applied to cold on LinkedIn. So I identified it through kind of just searching on LinkedIn, creating some different job search features. So I would get sent new postings quickly uh, when they were uh, coming up. And so I didn't know anyone in particular to have an internal referral at Scripps, um, but was really fortunate that they reviewed my application and followed up with an interview. But I would say that that is unlike the other positions that I've had in my career. So every other role has been you know, trying to utilize my network and build professional connections. And that's what's helped me get my foot in the door, especially making that early transition from undergrad to biotech. It was connecting with an alumni from Cal Poly who was working mm -hmm. there and building a relationship with them to where when there was a position that was open and I was looking to graduate soon, 
it was um, you know, an easier connection to make for that application process. And same with the subsequent positions I, I gained of building a professional network in that space. And um, really the, the current role I have is sort of the odd, odd man out in terms of how I've received other offers through my career. Well, it makes a lot of sense, though, too. Um, people are less likely to take a chance on someone with limited experience or straight out of college or grad school, um, which is why your network can be so powerful, um, because when a relationship between your contact contact and someone at the organization you're interested in trust each other, they trust each other's recommendations. Um, and it sounds like by the time you hit the point in your career where you were applying to scripts, you had really packed your resume full of some pretty valuable experience too, um, which sounds like it really resonated um, with your employer. So what kind of things uh, or what kind of skills did you emphasize in your application materials and or interview? In this position, um, I wear a few different hats. And so that was kind of described you know, in the job duties. And so when I applied, I really spent a lot of time looking at the job duties and thinking of specific examples of experiences I had that related to those job duties to make sure that I was tailoring my application to the specific components of that role. And I think that by spending a lot of time up front, really matching, you know, the different experiences I had to the position helped me stand out as a strong candidate. But many of those um, qualities included um, teaching. So I do a bit of teaching here at Scripps. So that was a component that was very important to highlight. Um, mentoring and working with students from diverse backgrounds. Uh, that is also something that's very important to uh, include. As well as presentation and workshop facilitation. So I lead a number of career and professional development workshops for our trainees. And so making sure that I had highlighted some of the experience that I had doing that. And as well, I manage a variety of programs here. And so showing that I had experience developing, implementing, and assessing programs was also something to highlight. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing those insights. And so obviously, you had experiences in multiple sectors at this point. And I'm curious if you were willing to share kind of the differences and similarities in the interview process between them. Um, like I've heard many horror stories slash just exhausting experiences through the interview process to become a faculty member um, versus some of the industry interviews that I hear about. So what was your experience like in those two interview formats? I think the other variable there is that some of that was during the pandemic too. So there's sort of an added layer of now we're doing some things virtually and some things hybrid. Um, so I'll just kind of add that in as another caveat. For some of the industry positions, um, you know, I was entering more at the research assistant or research associate level. So maybe the interviews are a little bit less intensive than if I was, you know, applying for a more senior level. But it involved a phone screen at the beginning. So like 30 minutes with someone from HR kind of reviewing my application, my qualifications, um, kind of going over more of the nuts and bolts of my fit for the role. From there, I was moved forward to actually a full day interview on site. And so I met 
it was again, a small biotech company. I think I was maybe employee number like 18. So I met with everyone from fellow research associates and scientists to, you know, the vice president of research in that panel interview, and then had a number of one-on-one interviews with people that would be more closest on my team on the research and development side, which is where I worked. So that was, um, pretty intensive, but also just kind of fit within that one day window. Mm. For faculty positions, there's a lot of similarities, I would say, in terms of sort of the flow. Um, The first was getting a call, uh, you know, a 30 to 45 minute phone call, or, you know, a lot of people just hop on Zoom at this point or do a video call with someone that was maybe leading the search committee to get a better understanding of my background and related experience. Um, Some institutes did that. Others sent straight to a like five person panel. So people that would be in the department, um, my colleagues, anyone on that search committee. And that was maybe an hour long and each of them would have a few questions to ask me. But I'd say the questions that were asked were very similar in either you know, the one person call or the panel interview split between the committee members. It just kind of varied a little bit. After that, depending on the role, they kind of asked for different things. So some people wanted to do a full day on Zoom again, because it was in the middle of the pandemic or early in the pandemic. I would do one-on-one conversations with more folks on the hiring committee to get to know them a bit more, as well as some teaching demonstrations where they would invite a larger cohort for the audience. So some of that would be other faculty members, but maybe in different departments, or it would be some of their student population as well. Um, So because teaching was a large component of most of the roles that I applied for, that was a central element of most of those interviews too. And what a different experience than what I did um, as my teaching demo was in person in the classroom, which is a whole different feel um, than doing it virtually. And there are pros and cons to both formats. Were all of your teaching demos online because of the timing of when you applied? Yes, all of my teaching demos were online. And so it was really important to have some tools for engaging the audience in that virtual setting. Again, it was at a time where a lot of educators were really learning how to do that and best practices. Um, And now it's maybe more second nature for a lot of teachers, you know, using the chat function in Zoom to have folks chime in or raise their hand with the raise hand feature. There's lots of uh, built-in ways to engage the audience. But at that time, it was really early in that shift to virtual learning. And so in many ways, it kind of forced me to engage with the scientific uh, community who's really focused on trying to find ways to teach. It was still effective, that was equitable, but was still rigorous. Um, and I think, you know, I learned a lot through that experience. And as as many students can resonate, some classes are still taught uh, virtually. Uh, some classes are still taught in sort of a hybrid setting and many work settings are hybrid. And so building that skill set early on through some of those teaching experiences has actually transferred through you know, the last few years of my career where I'm having to work in more of that hybrid setting and, and be able to engage with students online too. 
And how serendipitous that is in terms of you were going through these interviews, which were virtual, having to teach virtually. And then in the job you have now, it sounds like there's a mix um, and that there's some things that are in person, some that are virtual. And now it's a space you feel pretty comfortable in both. And so let's dive into more details about your current role. Um, So what kind of responsibilities do you have? Um, within your day and how much does that vary? Yeah, so I think like I've mentioned, I I wear a few different hats in my role. So really focused on the career and professional development side for our graduate students and our postdocs. And that looks like a few different things. Uh, One is program management. So that I'd say is a more administrative hat that I wear in my day-to-day. That's things like event planning, Um, developing different programs, implementing them, and assessing them. For example, we just recently launched an alumni mentorship program at our institute, and so really focused on kind of mapping out that program idea, testing it out this last year, and then doing more assessment of that program. And, And that's kind of a fun place to be a scientist and kind of look at program development and assessment from that lens where you're kind of setting up an experiment, you're testing it out to see how it goes. And then you're really strategically evaluating uh, that program, getting feedback along the way and kind of using an iterative approach to continue to improve it and make sure that it's really serving the population that you're interested in supporting. So I'd say that's sort of one of my hats. Um, Another hat is I do teach a little bit at Scripps. So I teach an ethics in science course And um, that is seasonal. So I teach in the fall quarter and then I'll teach again um, in early spring. So I kind of have these seasonal teaching commitments. Um, Every other year, I also co-teach a career planning for PhDs course. And so that's an eight-week kind of intensive career development course for our scientists uh, where they really dive into you know, their values, their interests, their strengths, and kind of do more guided career exploration through that course. So that's sort of another hat that I wear. Um, As well, I like to kind of flex my curriculum development uh, strengths and design new programs to support our career and professional development training. So this looks like thinking about what are the unmet needs of our population? Are people really interested in applying for you know, faculty positions this year, what sort of programming could I build to help support them in that space? And so it's a bit of that curriculum development and as well facilitating um, those trainings and workshops for our trainees. Delaney, that's incredible. Like this resource for these students is something that they can't find everywhere. Even in their own academic institutions, like there's the career center, but it's not customized and catered to them in the way you're describing. And so this sounds super exciting. How many students do you support? And I would love to hear kind of what an outcome story or a success story from a student who's gone through it. Yeah. So we have a bi-coastal graduate program. So that means that we have about 200 or so, 250 graduate students on our California campus. And then we also have a campus um, in Jupiter, Florida. We have about 80 graduate students over there. And so that kind of lends itself to really needing to 
work well in that hybrid learning environment because um, I aim to support and serve uh, populations on both of those campuses. As well, we have about uh, 300 postdoctoral scholars at our institute. And so I'm focused again on serving our, our graduate students and postdocs primarily in this position. Um, you know, that's really the best part of my job is kind of supporting these students. So I guess one other hat, if I can add to my list that I wear, is doing a lot of career advising and one-on-one -on -one support for our graduate students and postdocs. And you're right, not every institute has that level of support. Um, I certainly wish that I had sort of more of that support throughout my graduate career. Um, but you know, it's really amazing to watch students build their confidence in their strengths and their skills and um, you know, apply for positions and um, practice interviewing and going all the way through that process from wrapping up grad school or wrapping up their postdoc to securing the job that they're you know, so excited about and getting to be you know, a very, very small part in that process and hearing their success brings me so much joy in my job. Um, that's really been one of the most fun parts of this role, I would say. Hmm. I may or may not have stolen your answer to the next question um, about what do you like most about what you do? Um, is that the answer or is there something else that you wanted to share? Yeah, I think that is probably, you know, the best part of my role. Um, it's like building that relationship with other trainees and scientists, hearing about their work really kind of keeps me in mesh with what's going on in the scientific community too. So that's quite fun to stay engaged that way. But yeah, hearing their success stories, you know, inviting them back later on to, you know, an alumni career panel, for example, to then share back with our community about their progress and their training um, their, you know, their career has been really fun to sort of see that come full circle. Oh, amazing. That I can hundred percent agree with you on too. And I think that's what got me into the career coaching space, um, specifically working with students and early career professionals. It's just so rewarding in that way. And so, um, despite all of that joy and reward, no job or career is perfect. So what would you say is maybe the least appealing aspect of your work? That's a tough question. You know, there's so many elements that really bring me a lot of joy in this position. Um, I would say that sometimes it can be a bit removed from the science. So I did spend, you know, lots of years getting a, a PhD and working in, you know, some different sectors in that research space. And so I do go kind of out of my way to, to stay engaged in that community as much as possible. But like I said, I get to work with scientists every day and that does kind of keep me in the mix of what's going on. Um, and so for me, because it's not exactly meshed in with my day-to-day -day job duties, it's just something that I spend a little bit of extra time, you know, reading current publications or connecting with our students to hear a little bit more about their ongoing research going to seminars, things like that kind of keep me engaged. Yeah, I struggled with the same thing of, I still want to be a scientist, even if I'm out of the lab or out of the field. And like you, I've had to kind of be creative and go a little out of my way to find it. Um, but I still volunteer with the National Park Service um, with their wildlife surveys in the summer. I actually um, did some in-kind grant support 
for a turtle project going on here in the Midwest too. So I'm still finding ways <laughs> to dip my hand in it as well and um, dabbling in presenting at various conferences, um, which is a great way to get the registration fee waived and get to go see all those wonderful science talks. <laughs> so um, that's been kind of my way to still feel like a scientist, even if I am one step removed from it. Yeah, so um, in our slightly science-adjacent fields, um, what would you say is the class or course you took in your educational past um, that was the most influential or valuable in helping you do what you do now? So I'm going to pick a non-science class, actually, and sort of spending some time thinking about this. I think it was a communication class that I took mm -hmm. as an undergrad, and we had to give a lot. It was, it was really focused on public speaking, which was terrifying. You had to go up in front of the class and do lots of different talks. Some of them you were able to plan for, some you were not able to plan for. Many of them were recorded on video, and you had to painfully rewatch yourself up in front of everyone. But wow, did that help me really focus in on my communication skills and thinking about a lot of the, the storytelling, for example, that scientists do when they're presenting their work or when they're interviewing for a position, being able to tell their own story, background. Um, these types of things, I think, have been really helpful for my current position, both in terms of advising students and supporting them in that space but also in terms of the teaching that I do and the workshop facilitation that I do. Um, so it's kind of more of, a, again, an adjacent skill, but I think that public speaking class was tremendously valuable for lots of different elements of my career and especially my current role. And talk about a transferable skill. I can't think of a single career where communication in some way or another isn't critical um, for your success. So I am so thrilled that you shared a non-science class um, as one of the most influential because I think when you're in the weeds of it and you're trying to earn all those prereqs and some of you going to med school, having to complete a certain set of your STEM courses, don't forget about those non-STEM courses because they can be incredibly valuable. Um, I was talking to a client of mine who took eight years of Spanish and they're interested in becoming a physician and how wonderful it would be for you to be able to communicate in someone's native language that's not English, right? And so that can be a really powerful way um, to excel in your position and have something unique to, to bring to the table. And so I love it. Definitely consider those non-STEM courses and how they can be influential in your career in a much broader sense. So now I'm curious what you're going to say for technical skill. Are you going to say a science technical skill or non-science? So um, what would you say in terms of what technical skill has been the most useful to you? I would say scientific writing is actually really important for the work that I do. So in a lot of the career advising space, I am reviewing folks, you know, research statements, personal statements, uh, cover letters and other documents, and being able to really take a critical look and provide some structured feedback in terms of the writing, 
strategies for clearly communicating their story. Um, that's something I really enjoy. Um, and I think is, again, sort of this overlooked skill that a lot of people do you know, focus on a little bit throughout their training as a scientist. But for me, that's been something that I really leverage quite a bit in my current position. And you already did in this podcast when you were talking about um, the non-coding RNA that you were studying for your, your grad dissertation. You talked about it in such a way that felt so approachable and so understandable. Um, but I'm sure the nuances of the methods you implemented were much more involved and technical um, for the layperson to fully gra grasp. <laughs> Thank you. All right, so you hinted at this already. Um, it sounds like you would have really appreciated having a program or some support similar to what you're providing to your students now. Um, but what difference would that have made in your journey to have somebody like a career coach or a career service provider of sorts? I think it would have made a tremendous difference, especially at those sort of inflection points in my career. So, you know, finishing my undergrad or finishing my PhD work, or even, you know, wrapping up my, my fellowship in Washington, DC. Um, I think you kind of get to the end of these really long training periods where you kind of have your head down and you're focused on what feels like a very linear path, kind of chugging along up this mountain. And then you get to the summit, you know, maybe that's graduating or finishing your PhD and you're like, oh, I finally made it. But then you realized you've actually just made it to a false summit. And now you're at this branching trailhead that's going to all of these other mountains in the distance. And that can feel really overwhelming. And so having someone there that can help me kind of figure out some possible paths for myself, it was a little bit more structured um, instead of... Um, you know, me just sort of wayfinding um, on my own would have been a tremendous help. And also, I think, ease some of the stress that's also involved with making those decisions and being really unsure about what's the next best path, because you're kind of operating on limited information. So having a coach that can help sort of lay things out a little bit more clearly, provide you with some options, help support you in assessing your strengths and your skills, and sort of finding those possible paths could have been tremendous help for me. Oh, I love that analogy you used. Uh, perfect, spot on. So there is a lot of advice I think you could give our listeners, and there's some been great nuggets already throughout this. But if there were was one or two things that our listeners should really take to heart, um, what would those things be that would help support their career journey? I think the first is don't be afraid to try different things along the way. So sort of these more like low commitment experiential learning opportunities, like I mentioned at the very beginning, just shadowing my vet to understand really what is a day in a life? Is, is that actually what I'm wanting to do? Or for me, you know, getting a taste of what teaching is like by joining these different classes or doing more outreach in my community. I'm getting to try it on without making a huge, huge investment. Um, but again, I get a, a good sense of what that could be like. And so I would really encourage you to try lots of different things and get a taste of it along the way. And because I think that will help sort of narrow your career search a little bit more when you've been able to try something and decide, oh, this is actually really fun or, you know, not for me. 
And um, that can help sort of narrow the possible paths for you and maybe help ease some of the stress in making those decisions at those next phases. The second thing I would say is, you know, specific to the position that I'm in, you know, if you enjoy mentoring, being in a really student facing position, um, supporting students in your day to day work, if you like teaching, facilitating workshops, um, and doing some curriculum design, these types of skills are really great for the type of position that I'm in. And every institute is structured a little bit differently with where you could find these roles. So in the higher ed space, I think looking at positions in what's called student affairs. So if you're really interested in working with students, um, but also faculty affairs, if you're interested in working with a different population, maybe doing more programming and support for faculty members, um, those could be places to look. As well, some folks that are focused on, you know, supporting graduate students and postdocs also live within that career services branch. So kind of uh, be open to looking at different departments at those institutes because they're structured all a little bit different. And then take a look at the specific job skills and requirements and see if they align with kind of your interest there. Wonderful words of wisdom. If you want to hear more from Dr. Delaney Dan, you can. Head on over to patreon.com slash diverse roots to become a patron of this podcast. Not only will you be supporting the continuation of this podcast, but you will gain access to my extended interview with Delaney, where we go deeper into her day-to-day -day life and things she wished she knew earlier in her career. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Diverse Roots. Never forget your career journey is as unique as you are. Stay true to your values and journey on and know that you don't have to journey alone. If you're overwhelmed by career options or feel like your applications are getting overlooked, Success in Science Career Coaching is here to help. Schedule your free inquiry session today at successinsciencecc.com. Until next time, bye-bye.